in this Heritage Hour talk, we are talking and looking at a place which I'm sure you all know well, Chapelfield Gardens. The talk is entitled A Walk in the Park, but owing to the constraints of time, it may, it may be more of a brisk walk than a leisurely stroll. But I hope to show that this relatively small area of the city and its surroundings has proved to be an important setting for some fascinating events in the city's history and allows us to see just how much life in Norwich has changed over the centuries. The creation, development and very survival of Chapelfield Gardens is a fascinating and intriguing chapter in the greater story of the history of our city. A chapter which includes the transformation of religious life and practice in England during the Reformation, the English Civil War and the plague of the 17th century, the effects on the city of two world wars, and perhaps most importantly of all, chocolate. <laughs> now our story begins in 1248 when a priest named John Lebrun was granted by the church a large swathe of land, some six acres in total, which lay within the parish of St. Stephen's. In the mid-13th century, all the land where we're now sitting here, now covered by the Forum, the Assembly House, uh, the Theatre Royal, Dencora House, the sprawling mass of Chapelfield Mall, and of course, Chapelfield Gardens themselves, was just open fields and meadow, situated just outside the centre of the then Norman city. It's hard to imagine now when you look around you and see how built up it all is around here today. Now the plot of land given to Lebrun stretched from the edge of the churchyard of St Stephen's Church, as you can see on this slide. <coughs> um, it went up to, um, almost up to modern day St Stephen's roundabout up here, back down almost to St Giles, and then back along what is now Chapelfield uh, North, back down here again. So it's all of that stuff over that side of the road. For a sort of sense of where we are, we are here. Okay. On this land, Lebrun founded a hospital with a chapel, which he dedicated to the Virgin Mary, thus naming it the Hospital of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The exact spot where this hospital stood is not known, but it probably would have been approximately where the assembly house now stands. As well as being the founder, he served as master of the hospital. But by 1278, some 30 years later, aided by various benefactions, Lebrun had converted this foundation from a hospital into a collegiate uh, church, which was called the, the College of St. Mary's Chapel in the Fields, owing to its location. It was a place where priests were trained, basically. Um, and that, of course, is why the area around here is called Chapel Field, hence Chapelfield Gardens. It was a secular college where priests were trained with Lebrun becoming dean, the first dean there of some 24 who would serve in that role over the many years there. Now from humble beginnings, St Mary's College grew and prospered, gaining support and funding from the city. The priests there lived a communal life in adjacent halls, chambers, cloisters, with kitchens, a great hall, and other buildings for work, rest, and play. Daily masses were said in the great chapel on the site, which was enlarged and refurbished over time. The seal of the college had a Latin inscription, which the historian Francis Bloomfield translated as, the fields and virgin gave the name, and may good luck attend the same. 
Now, what can be, from what can be deduced from surviving archaeological surveys and educated guesswork, the chapel in its heyday would have been a big, impressive building. <coughs> Probably bigger than uh, St. Peter Mancroft Church at that same time. If you imagine we're standing, if you're looking at the view from here, we're standing outside the police station, looking across the forum, just over there. Now this image is based on research which was carried out about 1951 on the site. Um, and it shows the chapel as it would have looked about 1400 or what's, that's what they think it would have looked like. This, is, this slide shows a plan of the site and is based on surveys that were carried out in 1902 and from information gained from alterations made to the Assembly House made between about 1947 and 1950. Now you can see the property was of considerable size. You have, um, it comprises of a precinct or close, which lay to the south of the complex, which is now covered by Chapelfield Mall, a garden on the west side of the chapel building, now covered by a theatre royal and Dencora house, and a large area of land further to the west known as the Croft, which is all of what Chapelfield Gardens is today. Now the Croft was likely to have been ploughed land for growing of crops to supply the community there with food. The precinct or close was possibly surrounded by a wall, but the croft seems to have remained an open piece of ground. St Mary's College seems to have had a good relationship with the citizens and civic authorities of Norwich, unlike the larger community of monks living at the monastery attached to the cathedral. Relations between the cathedral and the city had often been very strained and even acrimonious in the preceding years culminating in the infamous attack on the cathedral in 1272 by the, ag by the aggrieved citizens, an action that almost resulted in Norwich, the whole of Norwich, being excommunicated by the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Considering this, it has been speculated that the Brun intended that his new college and the community of priests living there would act as a bridge between the church and the people of Norwich, creating a good relationship between the religious and civic communities living within the city. This simply may have been a piece of religious and political diplomacy on Lebrun's part to both appease papal authority in Rome, while at the same time ingratiating himself and his newly created college with the locals, and particularly with the influential and powerful men who formed and operated the various institutions and guilds in the city whose support and influence would be vital for its success and prosperity. The general goodwill and cooperation between the college and the city benefited the community of St Mary's Chapel in the Fields, and it prospered. Before the city guilds held their assemblies in the Guild Hall, just down the road, which was not built until 1407, the great civic assemblies were held annually in the chapel and great hall at St Mary's, the largest indoor spaces in the city then available. And it was here that the citizens chose the bailiffs who were appointed to govern the city for the coming year. It was also the setting for the great feast of the Corpus Christi, when the Norwich guilds marched in procession to the college, where they then dined and made merry. The city corporation, a forerunner of Norwich City Council, if you like, in the Middle Ages, used these spaces for official meetings or assemblies, so there is a much longer tradition of assemblies being held on that ground over there than you might think. 
but unfortunately St Mary's College was eventually closed during the Reformation in 1544 during the reign of Henry VIII. The last dean of the college, Miles Spencer, seems to have done quite well out of the affair. It seems he managed to persuade some of the senior clergy at St Mary's to resign before the closure of the college on much smaller pensions than they may well otherwise have been entitled to under the act of the dissolution had they stayed on until they were laid off. Provision was made under this act to pay pensions or compensation for those who lost their livelihoods when their religious institutions were closed. In April 1545, following the surrender, Spencer was granted the site back to him by the Crown for a nominal fee. He was ordered to demolish the great chapel and cloisters, which he did, and do what he liked with the other buildings. He had most of them pulled down too, but kept some of them for himself, which he later converted into a private residence where he lived until his death, aged 90. In 1569, he is buried in the cathedral. It took about two years to demolish the chapel and the college buildings, and by the end of it, there was a large mass of stone, timber, and rubble, which gradually was taken away from the site, although it took apparently over 30 years before it was all cleared away. Absolutely nothing of the college or chapel buildings above ground has survived, all traces of them long gone, although part of the original medieval crypt or undercroft does still exist beneath the east wing of the present assembly house. It has an impressive vaulted ceiling and an area of the floor comprised of original medieval tiling all the way back from the 13th century. The bells in the tower that once hung at St Mary's are now in St Lawrence's Church on St Benedict Street. Interestingly, several dozen persons were buried in the chapel grounds or even the chapel building itself, uh, most of whom secured their final resting place there because of the annuities or payments they made to the college during their lifetimes or else money they bequeathed in their wills. Considerable number, number of these were former chaplains. Lebrun himself, the first dean, was buried in the choir of the chapel. The tombstones have all gone, but their earthly remains apparently are still buried there somewhere on the site. After, Spe after Spencer's death, the site of St Mary's underwent great change, and the land and the property passed through the hands of many owners. Spencer's old house, now called Chapel of the Field House, was initially sold to Sir Thomas Cornwallis, former Sheriff of Norwich, uh, Norfolk. Like other wealthy and important gentlemen of his day, he would have required a townhouse to live in as well as country properties. In 1573, he began transforming the old building into a grand house for himself, renaming it, renaming it Chapley House. He added a new hall, kitchens, a gallery, and a porter's lodge. By 1586, he'd also added stables and a tennis court. The property was described at the time as a, a capital dwelling house commonly called by the name of Chapel in the Field House. The open land formerly comprising of the old croft on the far side of the estate, which is our Chapelford Gardens now, was, a, was first sold to the City Corporation um, in 1569 to Richard Fletcher, an old an elderman, to be held in trust by the City Corporation. Now, the city corporation's ownership of the croft meant that although it was leased out over the years to various leaseholders, the leases that they drew up stipulated that the people of Norwich had the right to walk there, graze cattle there, 
and use it as common land for all time. The croft became known, known as chapel fields. Now this slide uh, shows a not entirely accurate illustrated view of Norwich made in 1581 based on an earlier uh, drawing made in 1558. It's the earliest known uh, post-dissolution Chapelfield, uh, Chapelfield estate picture. It's just, Chapelfield is just there, if you can make it up. <coughs> now you can see, um, I don't know if you can see, hopefully you can, there are people, archers practicing, there's cattle, there are people wandering around. So it was clearly um, being used for those, uh, for those things in those days. Now if I zoom in a little bit, you might not see this is quite blurry. There is an intriguing, well, I try to take my word for it, next to the old Chappiefield house, there's an intriguing sort of blob here, which is actually the, the heap of rubble, which still by 1558 had not been moved away. <laughs> The area of the former close or precinct of the chapel appears by the late 16th century to be walled gardens. Possibly this was the case when the college was still operating. The chapel of the Chapelfield estate, if I just go back, is bisected by a wall. <coughs> uh, with an arched gateway which uh, is situated almost in the same place where Chapelfield East now runs, the road between Dencora House and Chapelfield uh, Gardens. Also, um, sorry, right, but the Chapelfield estate was sold eventually to Sir Henry Hobart in 1609. He was a very important man, a lawyer, an attorney general, an MP for Norwich. He was also very wealthy. Now the estate would remain in the possession of the Hobart family for the next 80 years. The Hobarts were a very powerful Norfolk dynasty whose influence was not just local but national. Their properties including the, included the Blickling estate. When Sir Henry acquired the Chapelfield estate in 1609, one part of the land called Cherry Yard, at the time a walled garden and now currently occupied by Dencora House, was not part of the estate but still held by the city corporation. However, after a few months, the mayor, sheriffs and citizens and people of the city of Norwich gifted him the lease of this land because of his truly generous love towards us and the city. This gesture was in appreciation of Hobart's service as a steward of Norwich for over 20 years. In 1622, Chapelfields, the old croft, was also leased to the Hobarts by the daughter of Richard Fletcher, the city alderman who first bought it back in 1569, thus making Henry owner of the entire Chapelfield estate, although crucially the conditions on the lease of the old croft stipulated that it could not be built on and had to remain accessible for everyone to use. I think it worth mentioning two rather grisly events that took place during Hobart's tenure or the Hobart's tenure of Chapelfield during the 17th century. In 1648, during the height of the English Civil War, a rather unfortunate incident known as the Great Blow occurred in the, in the old croft. Now just next door to the library, here on, um, opposite the old fire station, 
was the old Bethel Street Hospital. Originally on that site stood the Committee House or County Magazine where parliamentary forces stored all their arms, ammunition and weapons, including some 3,000 firearms and 98 uh, barrels of gunpowder. In April 1648, a rioting mob of Royalist supporters besieged it in an attempt to capture it. But in the fighting that ensued, the whole, the huge store of gunpowder was accidentally ignited and the whole lot blew up with a terrific explosion, utterly destroying the committee house, killing at least 80 people, wounding many more, destroying some 40 houses nearby, smashing windows of nearby churches. A mass of flint, bits of stone and timber and human body parts were scattered for a huge distance in all directions by the explosion, which apparently was heard throughout the county. It was also in the latter half of the 17th century that the old croft served the rather grim purpose of a burial ground for victims of the bubonic plague following an outbreak of the disease in Norwich in 1665. From October 1665 to October 1666, Bubonic plague was officially credited with 2,251 deaths in Norwich. In the last week of August 65 alone, 200 people died of plague. Exactly where in Chapelfield Gardens these poor unfortunates are buried is not known, but they are there somewhere. By 1655, the City Corporation leases regarding Chapelfield included the rights of the citizens of the city of ingress and egress and to walk for their recreation at all times. Now this cause was the key factor ensuring the preservation of the land for everyone to use, even the commoners to have use of. And it would allow for its subsequent emergence as a public park years later for us to enjoy and use today. It could have also easily have been built on, like the land on the other half of the estate, which is now covered with the Castle, uh, sorry, the Chapelfield Mall and the Theatre Royal, it's all completely lost. But that clause in the, in the lease meant that Chapelfield Gardens, as, as it became, was saved. Now, the Hobarts were not hugely keen on letting people wander around the grounds and use them, but the locals regarded them as common land anyway, in all but name, and treated them as such. Years earlier, St Mary's College allowed the citizens of Norwich to walk across the grounds too, provided they stuck to the path which ran along the inside of the city wall uh, that partially enclosed the land from the uh, early 14th century onwards. The last of the Hobarts to live there, Sir Henry Hobart II, took up the lease of the house and grounds from his mother, Lady Frances Hobart, when his father, Sir John, died in 1683. Although Sir Henry II acquired it, he decided to move his family to Blickling Hall instead. Their other home. And he granted the lease of the Chapelfield estate to one Mrs Elizabeth Ellsworth, which also allowed her the use of, um, or the, allowed her the right to reside in Chapelfield House, but on the proviso that the Hobart family could still have use of two rooms there once or twice a year, not exceeding five days and nights at any one time, when they wish to. Always check the small print before you sign the contract. <laughs> By the early 1700s, Chapleyfield had become very wild and overgrown. It was still used for grazing livestock and even people were living rough on there as well. In 1707, to tidy the area up, 
The first railings were put up around the park by the Norwich Corporation, thus giving it its familiar triangular shape that we know today. Although in the early 18th century, this area it was actually a bit bigger than it is today. A map produced by historian Sir Francis Bloomfield in 1746 shows a rather curious feature, a large area of open land that lies to the south of the property, which is now covered with Chapelfield Moor. That area of land is referred to as the Tentorium, which was a place used for stretching cloth on tenterhooks. By 1746, the entire Chapelfield estate was held on a lease by Thomas Churchman, a prominent Norwich citizen who later became Alderman of St Stephen's Ward in March 1759 and then Mayor of the City in 1761. Churchman lived just round the corner from us here at 71 Bethel Street, now a magnificent Grade II listed building and which until recently was home to the Norwich Register Office. Known still in honour of its famous resident as Churchman House. In the 18th century the park was much larger and was adjacent to his house on Bethel Street. During his tenure, he transformed it from rough open ground into, formally planted and into a formally planted and landscaped park, the first incarnation of the Chapelfield Gardens we would recognise today. It became a private pleasure ground for wealthy Norwich citizens, himself included, to enjoy, but crucially one still accessible to the public in keeping with that city corporation lease agreement made over a hundred years earlier. The park became known as a place of much promenade, promenade, particularly on Sunday afternoons. Churchman was responsible for planting the park's three main walks with avenues of elms and planting many other trees <coughs> around its perimeter. None of these original trees, of course, have survived, but have all been replaced with subsequent replantings over the years by the city corporation and then later on the city council. Most of the trees you see in Chapelfield today date from the late 18th, uh, 19th century and early 20th century. As the original elms died, they were replaced with limes and plane trees, but still essentially adhered to Churchman's plan, his original layout of the park. In 1749, he had new railings put up around the park. <coughs> it is really Churchman we have to thank for modern-day Chapelfield Gardens. In 1755, the magnificent assembly house opened, built on the site of the old Chapelfield House. It was designed by architect Thomas Ivory. And this wonderful venue offered all sorts of fashionable entertainments of the day, including bowling on a newly laid green nearby, ample room for assemblies, meetings, card playing, dancing, music, and guild balls for the local gentry to enjoy and where they could present themselves. So by the late 18th century, with the Assembly House in place, as well as a Theatre Royal open in its first incarnation, and even a bowling green on the plot of land, now occupied by Dencora House, and Chapelfield Gardens landscaped, this area became a sort of Georgian entertainment hub, to use a modern <laughs> phrase, with assemblies, theatricals, bowling, promenading opportunities for Norwich society to enjoy. But in 1789, to try to deal with the problem of poor sanitation and an inadequate water supply to the area, the city corporation leased the central part of the park when they got their hands back on it 
to the City of Norwich Water Company, who constructed a large reservoir and a water tower in the middle of it, <laughs> finally completing work in 1798. Unfortunately, the huge amount of spoil which resulted from the evacuated reservoir was just dumped in the gardens right up to the old city wall on the southwest side of the park, which is where the ring road is. And this proved to be something of an eyesore for visitors. The reservoir and its adjacent buildings also added to the general decline of the park's popularity to go walking. Uh, even though in winter, when it froze over, the reservoir was a very popular place to go skating. And so to try and solve this problem, the city corporation were obliged to open the old castle ditches as a public park instead. Back in those days, before uh, Castle Meadow was as wide as it is, the ditches were much, much bigger, so you could, you could, uh, you could do that quite easily. By the 1830s, the water in the reservoir began to drain away and it fell into disuse, replaced eventually by the Hyaman Lakenham Waterworks in 1840. And by the 1840s, Chapelfield Park had acquired a reputation for being the resort of loose and idle boys and being partly occupied by washerwomen and seems to be in great measure deserted by respectable citizens. Its poor reputation was made worse by an outbreak of cholera in the city in 1849, which resulted in the reservoir being totally abandoned as a potential health hazard. And Chapelfield Gardens fell into a very sorry state of neglect and dereliction, shunned by decent folk. In 1852, however, the Waterworks Company agreed to give up their lease on the land to the city corporation on the conditions that the grounds were laid out as a public garden in the style of the London parks in an attempt to <coughs> re-establish it as an attractive place to encourage visitors once more. The proposed plans for the park were elaborate. The disused water tower would be turned into a gazebo <coughs> and the abandoned reservoir in the middle of Chapelfield was to be made somewhat sm smaller and altered in shape to become an ornamental lake. Even a rustic looking lodge will be built near the northwest entrance, which is the, the way in nearest to uh, the, round, the big roundabout on the top of Grapes Hill. And the whole park would be enclosed by a wall with a, with a grand gateway at each of its three corners, creating a sort of country park effect. It was further proposed to place a newly purchased statue of Nelson on an elegant fountain pedestal in the centre of the remodelled reservoir. However, once the city corporation acquired the Chapelfield land back from the Waterworks Company, work was delayed, sounds typical of the council, and eventually their plans were dropped in favour of a much simpler and cheaper layout of intersecting avenues, which did not include an ornamental lake. The reservoir, was, uh, as a result, was filled in. Consequently, the idea of putting Nelson's statue in the park was also dropped. He was living at that time just outside the Guildhall. Um, and in April 1856, they moved him from there, because that's where he was waiting before he went into the park. And they moved into his present home in the cathedral grounds near the Irvingham Gate. Facing Norwich School, 
where he briefly attended before in, uh, embarking on his naval career in 1771. Now, the official transformation of the land into a public park began in 1866, when the Prince and Princess of Wales came to Norwich on a royal visit, and while they were here, they planted a Wellingtonia tree each to mark the agreement of the council to lay out the gardens for the purposes of being a public park. By 1867, the grounds were enclosed with new iron railings, and extensive planting of trees and shrubs in the Elm Avenues took place with civic dignitaries planting several specimen trees. The grounds were extensively landscaped and laid out as formal gardens in 1879, and were officially opened as a public park in November the following year by the then Mayor of Norwich, Harry Bullard, Esquire, he of the famous Norwich Brewing Company, Bullard and Watts, along with the City Corporation. The formal opening ceremony was an auspicious occasion. A band played military airs to entertain the large crowd who were present, which included city dignitaries, society figures, and the great and good of Norwich, as well as the common folk. It must be borne in mind that Chapelfield Gardens would have been a glorious haven of greenery and colour for many people living in those days, as Norwich was still a very crowded city of courts and yards, bad sanitation and living conditions, and so a public park right in the middle of the city would have been very welcome. And now for something of those of now for something uh, for those of you with a sweet tooth, no discussion of Chapelford could admit a very important and fragrant resident, namely Cayley's Chocolate Factory. So there's Chapelford up there. <coughs> Which um, once stood on the site, now occupied by um, the Chapelfield Mall. The company, Cayley's, was started by Albert Cayley when he opened a chemist shop on London Street in 1857 selling mineral waters, which he concocted in the cellar of his shop. By 1880, his successful business became a mineral water factory on the site next to Chapelfield Garden, using water from deep artesian wells that were on the site. By 1883, it converted the factory to producing drinking chocolate and then, three years later, to the production of eating chocolate. It ran successfully until 1932 when the business was taken over by John McIntosh and Sons, Halifax chocolate manufacturer, although the Cayley brand continued to be used until the early 1960s. Until in 1969, Macintoshes merged with Roundtree to form Roundtree Macintosh, under which name it operated until 1988, when the French company Nestlé acquired Roundtree Macintosh and chocolate production carried on under the Nestlé brand. But in, in 1994, Nestlé announced the closure of their Norwich factory, which was consequently demolished in 2004 and replaced with the glorious Chapelfield Mall we have today. <laughs> now, the park originally boasted several other interesting buildings that have now all sadly gone which are worth a quick look as they, are very, as they very have very interesting stories to tell and illustrate how the look of the park has changed over the years. Firstly, the drill hall. It was built by William Gilbert in the 1860s and it was a large building made of flint and red brick in the castellated Gothic style. 144 feet long and 62 feet wide. 
it had a tower which uh, was used as an officer's mess and it incorporated part of an old tower of the city wall. It stood on the spot now occupied by the roundabout at the top of Grapes Hill. It stood there. Because the city wall, as you know, comes down here, so the city wall would have just carried on down there, so it was right in the middle of that roundabout. <coughs> Back in the 1860s, Chapelfield Gardens went all the way up to the old city wall, Chapelfield Road and Chapelfield Road North all being much narrower. Now the drill hall officially opened on the 10th of November 1866 by the Prince and Princess of Wales on that trip they made to Norwich. And uh, the event was covered in the Illustrated London News and it was by all accounts a wonderful occasion. The drill hall was initially used by the 1st Norfolk Rifle Corps, which became the 1st Volunteer Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment. In 1883, it became the headquarters of the 4th Territorial Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment, uh, I beg your pardon, uh, in the First World War, it became the headquarters of the 4th Territorial Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment, when the battalion moved from the Drill Hall on Bethel Street to the Drill Hall in Chapelfield. The battalion was mobilised at Chapelfield Road Drill Hall in September 1939 for service in the Middle East and then the Far East during the Second World War. But following the amalgamation that led to the formation of the 1st East Anglian Regiment in 1959, the Chapelfield Road Drill Hall was decommissioned. It stood empty and disused, gradually deteriorating and becoming rather an eyesore before being demolished in the early 1960s when the new Inner Ring Road, modern-day Chapelfield Road, was built and the road system was all widened accordingly. Now you can see from this slide that when uh, the new road system was laid down there's a fair old chunk of Chapelfield Gardens disappeared as a result. Um, so the site of the drill hall, formerly in the park, is now about 20 yards away from it. There is a line of cobblestones, which you can just make out here, which they laid on the roundabout, so you can see where it stood, but obviously I don't advise to go and <laughs> take my word for it. <laughs> These slides by famous Norwich photographer George Swain show the drill hall. It's hard to imagine that you're walking up Great Hill, isn't it, when you look at that? Um, that's when it had closed and it was falling down. Probably everything in that shot's gone now. It's all been pulled down. And then it was empty. I don't know how it got in there. It's incredible. And then finally pulled down completely. Perhaps Chapelfield Garden's most elegant and attractive feature during this time was the ornamental Iron Pagoda, which once stood in the centre of the park. Designed by Thomas Jekyll in the Japanese style, it was made as an exhibition, exhibition showpiece demonstrating good old British design excellence, and it was built by Barnard Bishop and Barnard, the internationally reputed Norwich Iron Founders in 1867. The pagoda was first exhibited as a showpiece at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition in 1876 and proved so popular that it was subsequently showed off as exhibitions in Paris, Vienna and even Buenos Aires. When it stood in Chapelfield Gardens, its ceilings and the upper parts of its walls were decorated with um, elaborate embroidered Japanese textiles. 
But unfortunately, when the uh, pagoda was eventually pulled down about 70 years later, these were all removed and cut up to be used in, as curtains. <laughs> Luckily, uh, large fragments were found by pure chance in storage boxes years later, and uh, they were conserved in the costume and textile department at Norwich Castle Museum and Art Gallery. After the pagoda had been displayed around the world, it was purchased by the Norwich Corporation in 1880 as a splendid centerpiece attraction for the newly created Chapelfield Gardens. The pagoda underwent some restoration work in the early 1900s. However, in 1942, it was badly damaged by bombing um, during the Baedeker raids on Norwich, uh, which saw a lot of the, this area around here flattened. And although it survived blast damage and general corrosion of the structure meant that it was considered unsafe for use and it was abandoned until after the war when they decided it wasn't worth saving and it was dismantled in November 1949 the resultant scrap iron of which was sold for a mere 98 pounds some of the panels of the sunflower ironwork were saved covered and were incorporated into the gates at Chapelford Garden so if you're coming in from near the uh, Chapelford car park you see them and they're also at Higham Park as well in the gates there so we can at least see those and remember now next is the thatched tea rooms or the pavilion as it was called now today you can buy a cup of tea and a snack from the brick built tea room in the middle of the park near the bandstand um, which now which stands at the spot where the pagoda used to be but it's a rather dull thing compared to the thatched tea room that used to be there it opened in 1900 and was affectionately known as King Premper's Bungalow. <laughs> a humorous reference to King Premper I of Ashanti in Africa, with whom the British Army were then fighting a military campaign. The thatched tea room was eventually demolished in 1938 because it was falling into disrepair, not to mention the fact that a thatched roof may not have probably have passed any uh, fire uh, regulations now, and was replaced that same year by a sturdier wooden structure there which eventually became Pedro's Mexican restaurant it's the same building and finally a look at an interesting building that stood on the chapel on Chapelfield East up until its demolition demolition 1972 Chapelfield East uh, Congregational Church its size and grand appearance led many visitors to Norwich and one or two locals to assume that the word chapel in Chapelfield Gardens was derived from this old building here. It was a non-conformist church built by the Congregationalists and opened in 1858. It's a splendid looking building, I'm sure you'd agree. <laughs> However, a dwindling congregation and pressure to modernise the surrounding road system led to its eventual closure in 1966 the last service being held there on the 30th of December 1966. <coughs> the City Council purchased the property with the idea of converting it into a venue for live music or as a sports or conference hall, but it all came to nothing however and the building incredibly was demolished in 1972, yet another architectural gem gone. There was a hall at the rear of the building that was saved um, to become a useful um, adjunct to the adjacent Theatre Royal. It was used as a costume store and a performance space, but even that got recently demolished and is now, occupied, is now replaced 
by Theatre Royal Stage 2 Theatre Arts Centre. The premises next door to the old Congregational Chapel, once a school, was saved from demolition and eventually became the Irshan Mosque, significant for being the first mosque in the UK to be established by British converts to Muslim, has a community of about 200 people. Somewhat ironic, perhaps, the followers of Islam gather in a building once attached to a prominent Christian place of worship, which itself was standing in the grounds of St Mary's College hundreds of years earlier. By the 1900s, early 1900s, Chapelfield Gardens was established as a popular public park and garden. There was a children's playground recently opened, and an elegant bandstand had been constructed, which was regularly used for concerts and outdoor musical entertainment. The original, rather elaborate pathways were simplified, resulting in the straight avenues we are familiar with today. There was much replanting of shrubs and flower beds and a great deal of work and care put into maintaining the gardens. In 1914, at the outbreak of the Great War, Chapelfield Gardens once more became a site of military training and drill, just as it has been from time to time over the centuries. Originally in the 1400s, Thomas Erpingham trained archers there in preparation for going off to fight the French at Agincourt. In the 17th century, you had men, musketeers practicing and pikemen marching and mustering and what things that pikemen do. And 500 years later, you have um, men getting ready for war again. Now this shot shows new, <laughs> shows new recruits of the 4th Territorial Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment, performing so-called Swedish drill in Chapelfield Gardens in October 1914. They look quite happy. Um, <laughs> note the ties and starched collars on some of them. And this shot, taken at the same time, outside the old drill hall, shows a mixture of enlisted men in uniforms and then just peeking behind them over within the gap there, men in civvies, new recruits. A little aside, in 1919, after the First War, a British Army tank named Lily II, a veteran of the Great War, was presented to Norwich in recognition of the war effort made by her citizens. The tank was eventually positioned in Chapelfield Gardens near the drill hall. There it stood until March 1924, when the City Council didn't really know what to do with it and expressed their disapproval that it had not been removed, the war having been over for six years. <coughs> One councillor suggested that it could be turned into a rockery. <laughs> Finally, in January 1930, 12 years after the war ended, it was dismantled and sold to a local scrap dealer. It seems that the wheels of local government turners used to turn as slowly as they do now. In 1938, Chapelfield Gardens was temporarily closed during the so-called crisis when Britain thought it would go to war with Germany. In September of that year, trenches were dug in preparation for hostilities. There was a big network of trenches built there. Once the crisis was over, the park was reopened in 1938, 1939. But later that year, um, deeper and bigger air raid shelters were dug when it became obvious that we would go to war with Germany, as we eventually did. 
Now, the fear of enemy, enemy bombing was so great that the government decreed air raid shelters had to be constructed in big cities, particularly in parks like Chapelfield. These measures pro sadly proved to be necessary because the city did suffer very badly from enemy bombing throughout the war, particularly between April and July 1942 during the Baedeker raids. Chapelfield uh, suffered heavy bombing and uh, many buildings were destroyed. Cayley's Chocolate Factory being one of them was completely destroyed. Um, a lot of life was lost and buildings um, devastated. After Cayley's was bombed the next day, the air was thick with the smell of chocolate and burnt sugar. There were apparently some, some 1,000 tonnes of chocolate products ready to be dispatched when it got bombed. <coughs> now, in a large house next to the Congregational Church in Chapelfield East, which I showed you a moment ago, was based the Boys' Messenger Service. Oops, there's Kayleigh, sorry. Forgot that one. The Boys' Messenger Service. Young men, and one or two young women apparently, aged only about 16 or 17, who rode around the bomb-damaged city delivering vital messages and communications between various civic defence personnel, ARP, fire service, and so on. The work, I'm, sh I'm sure, would have been dangerous, but probably quite exciting for people of that age. Um, but these boisterous and fearless teenagers um, weren't as brave as uh, you might think, because the story goes that there was a, the old house where they were based was uh, supposedly haunted, or they were told it was haunted and uh, they were always very wary of any strange noises they heard there, bearing in mind they would have been there at night. Their nerves would have been quite fraught with the war, and they didn't like being left alone in the roofs on their own. Um, now, I'm sure these stories were embellished by the, some of the older members of the unit to wind them up, but apparently one night very strange and unsettling sounds could be heard coming from <coughs> the old stables behind the house, which were used as a repair shop for their bicycles and motorcycles. When one of the leaders plucked up the courage to go in and investigate, he suddenly found himself confronted by two elephants. <laughs> on rushing back into the house and demanding to know from the others what on earth was going on, one of the boys, Peter Gooch, confessed that he had been chatting to a member of a circus troupe that were, were, that were appearing at the Theatre Royal next door that week, and he had agreed to let them have use of the stables to house the elephants in exchange for some free tickets to the show. <laughs> now, in the years following the war, the city slowly recovered. And life got back to normal, and Chapelfield Gardens once again became a popular place to walk around, relax, and enjoy. There have been various changes and alterations made here in the post-war years. Some are relatively minor. For example, the Pedro's Restaurant or the, the new children's playground and, the, and, the, and Chapelfield Nursery. Others have had more of an impact mainly the uh, construction of the new inner ring road, as I mentioned earlier, which transformed the appearance and layout of both the surrounding area and the size of the park itself. We now have Ch uh, Chapelfield Shopping Mall here as well, and um, so forth. And now, um, and now instead of the uh, devout clergy and worshippers of God, we see the devotion of another kind, devotion to the gods of commerce, shopping and entertainment. What would the priests of the Middle Ages made of all, I wonder? But perhaps some changes have been for the better.
We should perhaps put aside our rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to looking at the past, tempting though it is to think that things were better then. Think of the pictures I showed you a moment ago of young men undergoing military training in preparation for going off to their deaths in the Great War, or the bomb shelters that were dug to protect Norwich's people from the murderous aerial bombing of the Norwich Blitz, the mass graves that had to be dug to intern plague victims of the 17th century, Poor sanitation and the threat of cholera in the 19th century may long be gone, but social deprivation and other problems linger with us still. This age, like any other from the past, has its blessings as well as its blights in equal measure. And we often blame developers and council planning committees for needlessly or ill-advisedly destroying our architectural heritage in the name of progress and modernization but was not the most grievous act of wanton destruction and desecration committed here during the Reformation, which resulted in the destruction of the buildings of St. Mary's College and its wonderful chapel, and the end of an entire way of life for the religious community living there. Just imagine that chapel still being there, just across the road here today. St. Mary's may long be gone, but we do at least still have the Assembly House, a surviving gem from the Georgian past for us to enjoy today, as well as Chapelfield Gardens themselves, of course, surviving from those dark, distant days. And Chapelfield Gardens today is still really what it has always been, an oasis of green amid the grey of our modern bustling city, a place for us all to enjoy. Such green spaces are, of course, even more precious and necessary today than they were back in the, in the 1660s, when the very first lease is drawn up for this place would ensure its protection from development and disappearance and to ensure the rights of citizens of ingress and egress to walk for their recreation at all times and that the grounds be cared for and preserved by the city for that purpose always and it is because of that dictate made all those years ago and the subsequent efforts by thomas churchman and many other men like him to develop enhance and preserve this beautiful public garden that we still have it to enjoy today. Thank you.